And good morning, everybody. So the triumph of God's kingdom, that's sort of the theme of Daniel's book. And we gave you the overview last week, just as a quick reminder about some of the big picture that we'll be looking at. A really quick reminder. We looked at this last week. Daniel prophesied not about a whole bunch of different events. He actually prophesied about three major events, and they're just mentioned in couplets or in different events that pair up with one another to be able to augment the meaning of each of those three events. So we have the first coming of the Messiah, which is prophesied, the coming of Antiochus Epiphanes, who was that fellow who precipitated some persecution of the church prior to Christ's coming, and then we're going to be looking ahead in history to the second coming of the Messiah. Those are the three biggest events that we're going to see, and they form uh, the near future, farther future, and farthest future events that give us the perspective on Daniel's book. Now, a reminder from Daniel's perspective, remember this is back before all these events took place, that both times the Messiah is going to enter the world, meaning that this is before his first advent, both times he enters the world, it'll be preceded by a severe season of persecution. And that was certainly the case. God's people were severely persecuted and Antiochus Epiphanes, who came on the scene, really started a lot of the persecution that happened prior to Jesus coming. And then of course we had the Roman government, we had lots of uh, political persecution, and then there were some other persecutions along the way, but Antiochus Epiphanes is important for us because he becomes, in a sense, a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. He's not the Antichrist, but he's a foreshadowing of that bigger beast that we're going to look ahead in history toward. Last week, we talked about Karen Chapel and a big decision she had to make because she was a quality control expert and she couldn't sign off on some syringes that a company was manufacturing because they were contaminated. And even though she knew it would probably cost her job, she made the right choice. She stood for right because she felt that God would be displeased and she wanted to do the right thing. And as we can see, God exalted her in a sense. He worked it out for her so that the company that was supposed to receive those syringes found out why they were delayed and appreciated her attention to detail and her character her honesty, and they said, we want somebody like you. So they hired her and increased her salary from her previous job. So it worked out really well for Karen. It's not always the case. Sometimes we'll see through history and in biblical history where somebody has stood for right and they become martyrs for their faith. And yet we'll see in the book of Daniel some really good examples of how God can use people who stand for the right thing and influence people, including kings. So let's read the first seven verses of chapter one as we get started working our way through this first chapter today. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families, 
who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure that they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. The king assigned them a daily ration of food and wine from his own kitchens. They were to be trained for three years, and then they would enter the royal service. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names. Daniel became Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. Now, last week I mentioned, almost in passing, but I did mention it because it had come from a commentary that I had read, that Daniel and probably these other three were directly from the line of King David because of this line that said they were from the royal family and nobility. An astute observer and uh, a scholar of the Bible and one of our own members pointed out, was he really though? Is it really completely affirmed in scripture that Daniel was from the line of David? Because I didn't think he was. So I really went digging this last week to try to find out, okay, is this one commentator making a leap or is he taking some rabbinic traditions and holding them steadfast? And I think he was taking the rabbinic traditions to heart. There are rabbinic traditions, those rabbis that would uh, put some of their oral traditions into writing later, some of the things that we found later that became the Talmud, for example. And they would hold that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were in fact descendants of King Hezekiah, who was from the line of David. Isaiah 39.7 gives some justification for that particular rabbinic tradition. Isaiah 39.7, Isaiah is speaking to King Hezekiah and he says, and some of your own descendants, some of translations even use the term sons. And then just to be sure that he was very clear about that, he says, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you? <laughs> it's like, is there any doubt that this is gonna come from your direct line? Will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Now, if we look into the story of Daniel, we'll find that the chief of staff, which is in some modern translations, is also called the chief of the eunuchs. Some say that that means that Daniel and his three friends were probably made eunuchs. Possibly that's the case, but it's not exactly confirmed either. Why would they do that? A lot of conquering nations would turn some of their slaves into eunuchs, especially if they're gonna be in the royal service in the palace, because they didn't want any kind of alliances with somebody that would dilute their bloodline or that might keep them from focusing solely on their tasks. It's very possible that Daniel and these other three were indeed made eunuchs. But we don't know all that for sure because there's nothing in scripture that con continues to connect these dots completely. So that's why I put the question marks there next to this idea that Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were descendants of King Hezekiah who was from the line of David. Maybe, maybe not. It's not specifically cogent to our looking ahead in history to the big things that we need to be learning. And so, because it doesn't have to do with specifically pointing to Messiah, we know that there are other foreshadowings that are just as important. So that doesn't become the primary focus for us. And I suppose that if God had wanted us to know it, he would have made it abundantly clear. Well, Daniel and his friends were very young men. 
I think it's good for us to understand how God can use people, even though they may seem very young and inexperienced. They were likely in their early teens, and there were other notable Bible characters that we see who were used by God, even though they were quite young. Jeremiah the prophet, who was only a youth, and he even said so. In fact, he protested and said, I'm only a youth. How can I do this for you? But God touched Jeremiah's mouth and said, I have put my words in your mouth, meaning that God would give him the words to speak. And he assured Jeremiah, that young prophet, that he would become a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah the prophet, David the king is another one. We've been learning about David the king in our growth encounter on Sunday mornings, 9.30 a.m., online, totally free. I invite you there. And then also Joseph, Jacob's son, quite young when his brothers plotted against him, sold him into slavery. He had lots of ups and downs, mostly downs for the first portion of that slavery. And yet God used Joseph, even though he was young, and eventually exalted him to become second only to Pharaoh. And Joseph's skills resulted in great wealth and power for Pharaoh, but it also resulted in the saving of God's chosen people because God allowed the favor that Pharaoh had toward Joseph to result in the land, the land of Goshen, oh, land of Goshen, where Joseph's family was allowed to relocate so that they would be well cared for and they were given jobs as shepherds of the flocks of the Pharaoh. All that was a part of God's preserving his people, the saving of many lives. And we can see that even though Joseph's brothers had sinned and sold him into slavery, when they finally found out who this person was, because they didn't recognize him at first, and then they were fearing for their lives and they were thinking, oh man, he's gonna take our lives for this. He's gonna have vengeance on us. And Joseph says, no, no, you meant to do me harm, but God meant this for what he's doing right now, which is the saving of many lives. And that's the first of several really wonderful opportunities in scripture for us to see that even though it might be the result of sin on somebody else's part, even though Satan was operating in some situation and meant that thing for evil, God has a way of redeeming that into his purposes and even the saving of many lives. And I'm grateful that God does that. That's a pointing ahead, I think, even to Christ, because we can understand that that's exactly what he did. Even though people meant that for Jesus' harm, God meant it for good, and it was through Jesus that he's saving many lives even today. And then we also know that Miriam, Moses' sister, was one of those young people. She must have been very young, somewhere between seven, eight, nine years old, depending on how old the baby Moses was when he was placed into that basket and sat down into the water, into the Nile. And his sister, Miriam, the older sister, even though she was a little bitty girl, hid in the bulrushes and watched to wait until Pharaoh's daughter came out and found that baby. And then she made her way over to Pharaoh's daughter and said, would you like for me to go and find somebody to care for this baby for you? And she said, yes, that would be great. And guess who she goes to get? Miriam and Moses' own mother. What a courageous kid. So God can use even young people in tremendous ways. And I think that's really good for us to see this in Daniel and also to see it in some of these other stories in scripture to understand that regardless of our age, if we are consecrated, set apart, holy, living righteous lives, trying to put God first in our lives. He can do miraculous things and influence others in huge ways by people's obedience to him. Now, we can see that there was great pressure to adopt the Chaldean culture with Daniel and his three friends, Ashpenaz, the royal uh, chief of eunuchs or the chief of staff, 
was tasked with conforming these young men to the Chaldean culture. And you think, wait a minute, Chaldean? Why are you saying Chaldean? I thought it was Babylonian. So which is it, Chaldean or Babylonian? Yes, <laughs> it's both. Because as we can see, there were several Chal uh, Chaldean kings, including the first one who came about 20 years prior to Daniel's arrival there in Babylonia. His name was Nabopolassar. And he reigned from Chaldean, which was a people group in southern, what would now be southern Iraq. It was in southern Babylonia back then in the Levant. And so over a period of about 20 years, this king started to put his imprint of Chaldean culture onto Babylonia. And he started a succession of kings that were also from Chaldea. And so more and more of the Chaldean culture became imprinted on Babylon so that over time, if you were to say Chaldean, people thought you just meant Babylon. It became synonymous. So when somebody is reading through some of these Old Testament passages and you see a passage that contains both Chaldean and Babylonian, they mean the same thing. And that was because of these Chaldean kings. That is for absolute free. And you can bring that up at your next party and wow the people with your knowledge. All right. There were pressure to adopt the Chaldean ways. They were to learn the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So why was learning the literature such a big deal? What would be difficult about that? And why would it be something that they might not want to do? Well, in the Chaldean or Babylonian literature, there was this thing called divination. And they had a lot of sorcery, a lot of people who were considered very scientific, so to speak. That would put that in quotes because it was sort of a pseudoscience back then. These people had a couple of different methods of divination or discerning what is the God's mood. And if you could determine the God's mood on a day of battle, you might find out, is this a good day for us to go into battle or a bad day? Is this a good day for me to propose to that girl over there or is it a bad day? What are the things that I should be doing? And so they had some very unusual uh, ways of looking at how you could determine that. One of them was to inspect the stars, astrology, and say they had a lot of astrologers back then in that part of the world. But another way that was much more gross <laughs> was that they could inspect not the stars, but the livers of sacrificed animals. Ew. And so this <laughs> way of divining, it was actually discovered by archaeologists because they have quite a collection of different cuneiforms. They were writing on clay tablets so they could find out these things. And they would have charts and graphs of different markings that they would find on the livers of animals, sheep and goats. So that by looking at those arrangements of either blemishes or certain marks, they could tell what a certain God might be thinking at that given time. Well, as we might imagine, Daniel was probably pretty aware of some of the Old Testament that he had access to in his growing up years. So he might have been familiar with this uh, passage from the prophet Isaiah. Someone may say to you, let's ask the mediums and those who consult the spirits of the dead. With their whisperings and mutterings, they will tell us what to do. But shouldn't people ask God for guidance? Should the living seek guidance from the dead? This is a rhetorical question, which implies, no. <laughs> Look to God's instructions and teachings. People who contradict his word are completely in the dark. I think that's really good for us to be aware of, that we're not supposed to consult the dead or people who are supposed to be coming back from the dead or mediums or fortune tellers because we serve a living God. 
and we have access to him through Jesus Christ, why not ask someone who's already living instead of trying to consult the dead? Well, my wife, Joy, took a college class in psychology several years ago as an adult, and she went to the college and the professor was gonna do something unusual for one of the classes that day. She goes, you guys are in for a real treat because next week we're gonna be looking at the psychology behind mediums or fortune tellers. And so I've invited somebody to class and it's gonna be a little extra charge that each of you can ante up because we're gonna be paying this person. Joy said, no, <laughs> I paid good money to take this class and I know this is wrong. I'm not gonna to come to class that day. I'm not gonna subject myself to that. There is pressure in all of our lives to adopt, adopt the world's views or cultural ways. And in this case, Joy just knew flat out that was something she was not supposed to do because she knew scripture. And we can learn that even from the book of Daniel. Well, whom do we worship? Daniel actually means Elohim is my judge, a Hebrew word that meant God. Sometimes they'd say Yahweh, sometimes it was Elohim. They each had different nuances, but it was God. It was the God of the Israelites. And so for Daniel to be named that, and then for uh, the Babylonians to try to rename these people so that they would conform to the Babylonian culture and image, Belteshazzar, which was his Babylonian name, meant may Bel protect his life. So they were trying to Babylonianize these four guys. Whom do we worship? Daniel remembered who he came from and who he worshiped, even by his own name. Well, there is a thing called cultural assimilation, and we've seen it. We've seen it happen in different cultures and subcultures. That happens when a minority culture loses its distinctive character, its cultural identity, and it begins to take on the cultural values or the beliefs and behaviors of the majority, or in this case, the conquering culture. It happened a lot. In the Old Testament, we see that. I'll be giving another illustration and example of that, which also has a little bit of an intersection with our story in Daniel. But we also saw that in some other cultures that we might be aware of. Uh, the Amazonian cultures, they had certain tribes. Um, Australia, the Aboriginal culture there. And of course, there was some real pressure in America to try to continue to marginalize and culturize the Native Americans as well. That happens a lot. And in this case, Israel could have really lost its identity but it didn't. And that's why this story can be very vital and important because it's showing again how God protects and preserves his chosen people, even in their cultural and religious beliefs and identity. Daniel and the other Israelites in Babylon learned about the Babylonian culture, but they never lost their grip on their loyalty to or their strength from Yahweh. They never lost the grip on that. And we're grateful for that. Because of all the countries in the world, we understand that Israel never did lose that identity. You know what the old saying is, you can take an Israelite out of the promised land, but you can't take the Israelite out of the Israeli, or so they say. Well, one of the examples that I can see that came right off to the top of my head, because I have preached about it before when we were going through uh, the entire gospel of Matthew, for example, and we got toward the end of that gospel, there's a, an example of cultural extinction, started with assimilation and then extinction was the result. And that was the Edomites. Edomites, the origins of which came from Edom in Hebrew, which means red, 
because there was this red-haired young lad called Esau. That name may sound familiar to you. He was the firstborn son of Isaac. He had a twin brother, twin brother of Jacob. Isaac and Jacob, or Esau and Jacob, always were, their descendants were at war with one another, at enmity with one another, which was a part of the prophecy that came out of that uh, old story. Well, interestingly, the Edomites kind of were nomadic and they traveled around and they stayed in different locations for different periods of time. And this is a, over a period of hundreds of years, mind you. So it was a long period of time. One of the places that they stayed was in Petra. We know it as Petra now. That was a place that used to be their stronghold for a while. And uh, we can see that the Edomites had some bad blood that was carried out all the way down through the descendants of Esau and Jacob. And they didn't treat Israel very well at all. They refused to let Israel pass through their land when they were coming back up from Egypt, trying to make their way back. And so there was a lot of skirmishes, uh, a lot of war, just a lot of years of bad blood between these two. It's almost like between what comes to mind, Northern and Southern Ireland and some of the skirmishes and, and bad blood going on between Catholics and Protestants and things happening there. Well, this was a, a Hatfields and McCoys kind of situation and it went on for years. Well, they joined Nebuchadnezzar in attacking Jerusalem. Now we're starting to get close to our story in history, resulting in the exile. And that's where we find Daniel's story. The Edomites were subdued by the warlike Maccabees, and eventually they became incorporated into the Jewish nation. So they were assimilated, so to speak, into that culture, the Jewish culture. Their land down near the southern border of Judah became known as Idumea, which, as we all know, is Greek for pertaining to Edom. I'm sure you knew that, right? Well, in 47 BC, Julius Caesar appointed an Idumean to rule Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. Any guesses about who that might be? Anybody? Anybody? Yes, King Herod, the king of the Jews. He was that despicable fella. Well, he was a descendant of these Edomites. After Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, Idumea, or Edom, ceased to exist, which was also prophesied. So that was a case of cultural extinction. Israel, however, remains distinctive. So we can see how one bloodline went all the way down until they are no more. We, we can't look on a map and find Edom anywhere or even Idumea. But Israel is still Israel because God was continuing to preserve them and protect them and save many lives in the process. They've never lost their distinctiveness. Loyal followers of Yahweh, like young Daniel and his three young friends, continued to live in Babylonia, but without being assimilated into Babylonia. We might say today, you're supposed to live in the world, but not become of the world. And that's where we get some of this distinctiveness from. So thanks, Daniel and your friends for giving us a good example. Be like Daniel. Preparation for putting God first. This didn't happen in a vacuum. Daniel didn't just wake up one day and say, you know, I'm going to push back against some of these spiritual practices. He had to be prepared for that. Well, how was he prepared? Well, there were some good influences on his life. There were the influences from his own parents. We don't know much about them except that they named their son Elohim is my judge. That's enough to let us know that his parents put God first and wanted him to be reminded that there is going to be a just judge and you're the one, God, that I have to answer to more than anybody else, including King Nebuchadnezzar, 
or Ashpenaz. No matter who comes along, even though they're in authority over me, ultimately I have to answer to God, Elohim. Then there was the influence of the community of faith as well. There was the important event that happened very close to Daniel's birth, and a couple of commentators think, and I think there's some good reason for that, based on the years of the, the reigns of different uh, kings in this area, and then also when the big event that I, I almost gave it away, I almost gave you a spoiler alert there, when this big event took place, they think that they've lined it up so that the very same year that Daniel was born, something important happened in the temple back in Jerusalem. Anybody want to guess what that was? Just about the time Daniel was born, which we think was about 622 BC, based on different biblical dates, Josiah, who was then only 18 years old himself, because he'd become the king of Israel when he was only eight years old. Talk about God using young people. Wow. Josiah opened the doors of the temple at age 18, the one that had been shut and sealed by his grandfather, Manasseh. And Josiah, the young king, unsealed the temple doors and what did he find in there? Do you remember that? You can shout out the answer because you're in your own homes. Yes, that's right. He found the word that had been lost, or so they thought, these scrolls that contained the word of God. And that's when the priests began to teach the people God's word. That happened the same time or right around the time when Daniel was born. That was great because they experienced a great awakening, so to speak. This was like a revival in Israel, and that is what Daniel started to grow up in, which is why he knew by the time he was taken into exile in his teens that he was supposed to put God first, and he knew a lot of that word that had been implanted into his heart and mind. I think that's pretty phenomenal, don't you? Well, then we can also see that besides his parents and besides the community of faith, which he grew up in, we can also see the influence of the Lord found in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. Let me read those to you as well. Let's look at this next chunk of scripture. But Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now God has given the chief of staff both respect and affection for Daniel. But he responded, I'm afraid of my Lord and king who has ordered that you eat this food and wine. If you become pale and thin compared to the other youths your age, I'm afraid the king will have be beheaded. And Daniel spoke with the attendant or the guard who had been put in, char in charge by the chief of staff. So this is somebody that Ashpenaz had put in charge of them at that time to look after Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test us for 10 days on a diet of veggies and water. Daniel said, at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in light of what you see. The attendant agreed to Daniel's suggestion and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished. I love one translation that says fatter in flesh than the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. So after that, the attendant fed them only vegetables instead of the food and wine provided by the others. God gave these four young men an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. And God gave Daniel the special ability to interpret the meanings of visions and dreams. So what is the big deal about eating the king's food? It's good food. Why shouldn't they have just said, 
God's blessing us, even though we're captives in Babylon, at least we're eating well. <laughs> well, there are a couple of different reasons for that. We understand that if they were going to be healthier in body, spirit, and mind, they couldn't eat defiled food. And because of the laws of Moses, which is the first reason they didn't want to eat it, they would be defiled because some of this meat that they were going to eat was not the right kind of meat. Secondly, and this is probably even more important, they knew that because of the religious practices in Babylon at that time, that meat would have probably been offered to idols in idol worship prior to be given to these young men. And they didn't want to do that. They may have known again what was happening uh, in some of the Old Testament passages. And so they said, no, we can't eat the meat offered to idols. We don't want to have any part of idol worship. But after 10 days, fortunately, Daniel was better in appearance, better nourished than all the other young men. So he was better in body. He was better in spirit because his spirit was in tune with God. God gave Daniel a special ability to understand visions and interpret dreams, which shows that there was a connection between his spirit and God's spirit. And he was better in mind. He and the other three were given this unusual ability. They were so sharp. And God gave them that sharpness, an unusual aptitude for understanding every aspect of literature and wisdom. So Daniel won the challenge. Well, Daniel didn't. God won the challenge. But Daniel was trusting in God. And by being able to challenge, but nicely and saying, okay, well, let's just give this a test. That seems fair. And yet there was one example of Daniel stepping forward. And in a diplomatic fashion, he pushed against that which he knew was wrong, according to his uh, religious practices. And God won that challenge for him. Well, Daniel, as we can see through this passage, not only in, influenced those people in his local circle, but he was influencing kings. Let's read verses 18 through 21. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the royal service. Whenever the king consulted them in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them 10 times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in his entire kingdom. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. Now we have dates to compare that with, which makes us aware that Daniel influenced and his friends influenced three kings that we know of. Chapters one through three, he influenced this king, Nebuchadnezzar, which was the one that we meet at the very beginning of the book of Daniel. And then we see chapter four, a different Nebuchadnezzar, but this is the third, Nebuchadnezzar the third, also known as Nabonidus. And then we have chapter five, Belshazzar. And this is a spoiler alert. Things do not end well for Belshazzar. You'll find that out when we get there. Now, here's something that I found incredible, and that is that there's a very good chance, because there may have been a slight overlap between the next king who comes on the scene, that Daniel may very well have influenced King Cyrus. As prophesied, in fact, Cyrus released the exiles so that they could return back to their homeland in Israel. Now, here's a mind-blowing Old Testament prophecy. You're going to just fall off your chair. It's so mind-blowing but don't hurt yourself. God reveals what Cyrus is going to do for Israel 150 years before it happens. God revealed this news to the prophet Isaiah 
And in this prophecy, the prophet even calls this king by name. So it's kind of like not one of these nebulous things. He's getting very specific here. And he gives details about the king's benevolence toward the Jews. Here we see this in Isaiah 45, 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, the only other king that's not one of the kings of Israel that he uses that term for, anointed, which means that basically he's got God's hand is upon him. To Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him. Here's something vital for us to understand about God's sovereign rule. Cyrus was not a believer in Yahweh. In fact, there were some things that he did that were probably considered pretty despicable because you don't name a king so-and-so the great if they hadn't conquered. And he was a conqueror, and so I'm sure that he had had blood on his hands. But God, speaking through Isaiah, said, I summon you by name and bestow on you the title of honor even though you do not acknowledge me. We see that in Isaiah 45, 4. Isn't that remarkable? Again, another example of how somebody may do something and they may mean it for evil, but God can take that same act and transform it and redeem it into something good for his eternal purposes and turn something that was meant for evil into something really good, as he did through Jesus Christ for our benefit. So God can use whoever he chooses to accomplish his purposes. That's really good for us to remember at this time and in this season. Not only did this king, who is not a follower of Yahweh, release the Jews to return to Israel, but Cyrus also actively assisted the Jews in rebuilding the temple that had been destroyed earlier under Zerubbabel and Joshua. And check this out. As if that weren't enough. Thank you, Cyrus, for all those things. But wait, there's more. Cyrus actually restored the temple treasures to Jerusalem, the ones that had been removed from the temple and taken over and put in the temple of the pagan gods there in Babylon. He restored those objects to their temple. And this is huge. He allowed the building expenses to be paid for. Are you ready for this? From the royal treasury. We can read in the book of Ezra. Cyrus's generosity and favor toward Israel made it possible for the Jews to restart the temple worship that had fallen by the wayside in their 70 years of captivity. Wow. God did that. Cyrus didn't do that. God predicted that it was going to happen. And Cyrus did exactly as God wanted that to happen because God can direct the actions of kings just like he can channel water over into an irrigation ditch and bring forth fruitful crops somewhere else, which is, I think, what the proverb writer had in mind when it said, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. And there can be such great fruitfulness born just because we understand that God is the one who's guiding those actions. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord, and he was certainly guiding all the way through even these three kings that Daniel and his three friends were under their authority when they were in Babylon. Well, Daniel influences his friends. We can see that in chapter three. This is a foreshadowing. I'm not going to give you all the details. Daniel's three friends. This time it was their turn and Daniel was not in the furnace with them. But Daniel's courage by stepping forward and not wanting to eat the food that was put before them for religious reasons gave his friends some more courage too. So I'm sure that Daniel's courage probably helped give them courage as well. And I think that happens to all of us. When one of us 
is courageous in taking a stand. Others watch that and we take courage from that and we ought to do that for one another. That's why we need to be in the word together all the time because even that gives us courage in a supernatural way coming from the Holy Spirit who's bringing that courage into our beings through the word itself. Let me give you a modern example of how this is happening even today. When I visited Zimbabwe, they were really in bad shape. Uh, their president, Mugabe at the time, had really run things down. There were people starving to death. They had taken over a lot of the white farms, but the people who took them over didn't know how to farm, and so the crops were just laying in ruin. It was a terrible time. The economy was spiraling out of control. Inflation was like 700% at that time, and it went nowhere good after that. And yet, starting at that time and moving forward, there were some Christians who were just gathering to pray. And they gathered and they kept praying and they kept praying. And they said, we're not going to take revenge. We're not going to allow ourselves to become vengeful. We're not going to use force, which is what happened when Rhodesia became Zimbabwe because it was a military coup, a huge battle. They said, that's not the way for us to have a change in regime. We're going to have a democratic vote and we want it to be fair. And although it's going to be difficult for us, we're going to keep praying for that. And we're going to resist the urge to do anything violent. And it was tough for them and it's been tough for them. But there were a couple of people who finally made their way in until they had some co-leaders, which is a very difficult thing. And it was very unusual, but they were taking baby steps toward becoming democratic and things started to change. We can see that change continuing to happen. And even though there was a, another dip in their economy and people were disgruntled about it, they started saying, no, but we have a different way of looking at things now. So their government is very different than it was two decades ago. Zimbabwe as a nation is taking on a different character. How come? Because there are people like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, bunches of them, who are praying and continuing to be examples and influencers to the leaders who are there. And we continue to pray for them. We have a good friend of ours who's a pastor there, Gary Cross. And we keep praying for him all the time because we know that his church is a part of that praying group of people helping change literally an entire nation. Folks, we can help change our nation. And we can do so through prayer and by being people like Daniel and his three friends, staying true to what we know to be true in God's word and not allowing ourselves to be assimilated into this world. Let's be like Daniel. Let's pray. Father, this is so important for us to recognize that even though we feel like sometimes, oh, what I do doesn't make a difference, it really can. And collectively, as the church, we can make a difference, and we can make such a difference that we can literally influence a nation. We need that right now in our nation, and I pray that believers everywhere will continue to pray every day, not just for our nation, but for nations around the world, so that your word will become preeminent, that Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension will become central, that that gospel will spread, starting locally and moving all around the globe, and have that salt and light influence. And even though we're in difficult times and we can look forward to a time when your justice is going to be meted out, a healing justice, and you can restore the, the world to the way you intended it, there's still going to be a lot of things happening between now and then. And I pray that you'll give us strength to endure whatever kinds of persecutions come our way and that we won't waver in our faith and we won't compromise in our beliefs. 
because we're, we are your people. And we thank you for that. We pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, <laughs>